Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I've got an old mate of mine coming into the beach shack, Jimmy Walker. We chat about growing up at Bronny Beach together and then also going into paddling where he went to kayaks, went to the Olympic Games in 996 and we also talk about now ocean paddling and how big it's got and his new ventures where they are now doing race one supplying all the equipment to the athletes and also giving back to help the youth coming through. Let's sit back and have a listen to my chat to Jim. This week on Life's a Beach. Growing up with me from the beaches around Bronnie and Bondi for uh, for many years now, I won't give away our age, we're sort of well into uh, over 50s, put it that way. But uh, it's good to see him uh, in the shack, and uh, he went to the Olympics in 996, so he's got a, a really good story on, on and paddling and the amount of uh, sport that he's done. So welcome, Jim. Thanks, Hoppo. Great to be in the shack. Mate, it's always good to have you. It's gone from the hill to the cubes to the beach to the shack. <laughs> Here we are. Mate, we've had plenty of names, but look, I thought we'd start back. We, all, we grew up at Bronny, so tell us about growing up back in those days. Yeah, it was definitely a lot different to what the world is today, but um, it it was a good place in terms of uh, learning friendships, how to deal with different people, different ages, something that I've been very fortunate enough to to learn from that experience, like moving on through doing different sports in the paddling fraternity and have to mix with different people and and be able to understand each other. We, we was a pretty eclectic group down at Bronte. You know, we had some people who were wealthy and people who were just knockabouts, people who went to private schools, public schools like we did. And uh, we just had a common goal of going to the beach, being in the water. You know, there were some really, really funny characters down there that we grew up with. Um, and I, th- I think that sort of lifestyle and also, it was a time where we really were taught to respect our elders. And I think there was a few times there I mightn't have done that as best that I could have and, and uh, copped a bit of old corporal punishment. And um, But come out the other side of it uh, well, and, and I guess uh, I probably learned how to be disciplined from like without even knowing it uh, through hanging around all those different types of people and, uh, and seeing how they all got on in life. Yeah, well, I remember back, you, you know, you wouldn't have been a cheeky kid, you know. <laughs> I know you gave a few of the older ones grief, but they did get you, though. I mean, I remember we uh, we all copped a bit of punishment from from uh, the older guys, especially like surfing, you know. We go out to surf the reef. I mean, you were the goofy footer. You liked the bunker a bit more, I think, than what you did out the reef. But there's a hierarchy on where you sat, wasn't it? Oh, it was a classic where you'd sit and um, about the punishment, uh, you know, funny as you say, there was the reef, but then there was Bunny Bay, which all the locals would know what I'm talking about. And I remember I was there and um, one of the older blokes had said to me, 
don't worry, I'll get you one day. And I was out <laughs> on Bunny Bay thinking I was ripping and he got me and he pushed me under a few times <laughs> and I got sucked over the falls near Bronny Bars. And, uh, yeah, I think that's probably where I said, you know what, I'm a goofy footer, I'll go back to the bunker. But, uh, yeah, there was, it was a pecking order and it was, it was you know, a good thing to learn as a young kid that you, you do have, you learn respect and you learn to take your turn and the older people just get that out of turn. And we have this funny thing now at North Bondi Surf Club where I am now in the, in the change rooms, in the showers, we have a, the oldest person gets the best shower and they get the most hot water and the young kids know down there about, you know, here's an older person, hop out, and there's still a little respect that, yeah. Uh, back to being the cheeky kid. By all reports, I think that I must have been because a few people said that I was, but uh, <laughs> I gave plenty and caught plenty but enjoyed it rather, nevertheless. Mate, now uh, we, we obviously did nippers as well and, and then started getting into competition. Do you think that was the start of being, like, competitive? I think I didn't, I didn't really know how to be competitive as a nipper. I, I, I just went and did it as an activity and, uh, you know, you, how to be, you, you, your dad was my age manager and he, we used to have paddle pop sticks about who could do flags. By the time he blew the whistle, the kids had the flags. I hadn't even got up off the sand. I was that slow. I think I learned to be competitive in, in what we talked about in trying to get in the, in the, in the lineup in, in waves. For those who wouldn't know that, maybe if they've been to urban surf where you have to queue up and it was like that, but he who paddles out fastest gets a spot in front of someone else. And um, I also remember that I knew that some of the older blokes loved to get on the uh, cigarettes and, um, <laughs> and a few other things in the beers. So I knew if I just hung in there and paddled a bit harder, I could get out there before them. And then over time, then I think when I was a late nipper, I, I got into some competition. I didn't actually know what it was. And, and by chance, I'd won the Sydney branch under 13 board going to my first carnival with, with actually not even knowing what it was. And I think it was from there. It was a good culture at Bronte then. It was a shame that, um, you know, the people who were running it there didn't have probably the same passion as what I would have ended up wanting to be. So I was very fortunate that um, the good people at North Bondi, Tony Hamilton in particular, and what they were doing, um, fell in, I fell in love with that way. And I sort of fell out of love with the way that where I grew up with, just because of what I wanted to do. And, and when that sort of, when that happens is that it can be difficult because you have to start again. I know that I was only like 13 or 14, so that sounds like, you know, of course, you can just pick up friends with anywhere, but it's like it was, it was like going from um, the toughest streets in the world to going over and, and, and playing with people who had lots of respect and, you know, and you, you're not out of line. And I was like, well, <laughs> I grew up the other way. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good learning curve to sort of calm yourself down and um, and then I involved myself with people who loved doing what I liked doing, training and like I loved surfing, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, I thought I was, but I, in reality it was, I wasn't very good at it. And I loved this new surf club competition and people over there like Scott Thompson and Matt Calhoun and Peter Calhoun you know, these sort of guys, they became great friends of mine and they just went training. So, so like it was like I was this young kid who wanted to hang out with them and if I didn't go training, it would have meant like two hours of the day I sort of couldn't hang around with them. 
So I did that and then there were a few older blokes there who were training. And when I say older blokes, it's quite funny. I look back, they were about 35, 36. And I used to think that they were dinosaurs. And I was just like, there's no way these old blokes are going to beat me. And um, it comes back to haunt me now. I'm like 50 and these young kids are training with me. And I'm thinking, what do they think of me? So, um, yeah, learning, I think you learn to be competitive from the environment that you're in. And it was just by chance that I learned to be competitive just out of the product that was where I grew up at Bronte. People were like really strong and tough and olden day people. And so you learn in, in a way without even knowing it. But when I went to North Bondi, I learned to train and then racing taught me to be competitive and then drive from there. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's what I found too. It's You sort of learn to drink and, and be tough and surf at Bronny and But uh, yeah, different story at North Bondi is more that competitive and, and getting in and training hard. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't much training hard uh, at Bronte, <laughs> that's for sure. The lovely characters who I love catching up with now and I see them, I do have a laugh. But uh, yeah, I think they, if they really knew how much training I did, I think they'd think I'm a bit of a weirdo. I think, I think they still do think I'm a weirdo. Yeah, no, but yeah, different, different lives and different yeah. people, but, but still yeah. the same old great people. And then, as you said, you got to the training, you went on to be, you had a go at board paddling, uh, ski paddling, Ironman. Tell us a bit about, you know, coming through in your teenage years. Yeah, I, so I was, again, I'm very lucky that uh, a guy called Mick Porra, who's arguably one of the best board paddlers ever, where you didn't have to run into the water or run out of the water like they do now. Uh, Mick had won numerous titles in, in board paddling. He moved to Sydney and joined our club, so... It was a really good opportunity to, to do board paddling then. But after what they called the cadets, under 15s, I finished fifth at Aussies. I went to the next year and did board paddling and, and Mick had sort of, he was older then, so he moved on. And my dad only ever said to me two things about being doing competition. He played rugby league, first grade for the Roosters and there was no way I was ever going to tackle anyone. So I was never going to play football. He said to me, if you win an Australian championship in surf life saving, they put your photo on the wall at the club and they never take it down. And th then he said, you know, if you do something in sport, you could go to the Olympics as well. And so I was like, well, board paddling is never going to do that. We started to do some kayaking in, in my family. My brother did some paddling. He went on a junior team and, it was just like what sort of the Walker boys did, right? Go training and, and I was learning it. And there was, a, there was a race that was quite famous club racing called Lillipilly down in Cronulla Sutherland. And the likes of the Mercers, Brian Morton, and it was just huge. And I was like, if, I guess that was the first time I worked out to have a goal. I was like, if I could win Lillipilly, one race, life complete. Like that, that's all I want to do is win a Lily Pilly race. And I got some sixes and fifths and fourth. And I still remember they used to go up and down and I got to the lead and you had to go up a, a, a turning flag and come back. And I was like, I was already writing my acceptance speech at Sunday and I was coming down <laughs> and a boat wash come and I went in the drink and uh, <laughs> fell in. And, uh, but, it, it, but it was from that environment of getting into paddling 
that, that, I, that I started to go right. And then I raced Clint Robinson at the national championships. Whilst, you know, I'd, I'd be silly if I ever said that I could ever do anything that he could. But I got close to him at the Aussies and I got second. And then I'd been doing a bit of training with Guy Leach and he sort of mentioned, do you want to come and get fit and do iron and move to Noosa? I was like 16 going on 17. And so my family allowed me to. And I went up there and I trained and I trained and I trained and I, I was doing so much swimming and running and <laughs> I couldn't lift my arms from the amount of swimming I was doing. And I think I did try to do a race and got absolutely walloped. I'd, I'd done like the, the, the equivalent to the cooling out of gold when I was 14, 15. I'd uh, done a couple of races in the Nutri-Grain and wanted to give it a go, but I just didn't really find a, a, a true love for it. And then uh, in Narrabeen, a, a guy called Ben Hutchings, who was the um, New Zealand head coach when New Zealand had won all the Olympic gold medals in LA in 84, he, uh, Manly Kayak Club, through a bloke called Len Turner, poached him or however they did and got him to come out and be the coach. And they had this introduction thing where you could come and try out to see if you could make, I don't know if it was a team or a squad or whatever it was, there was, there was no institute of sport like state-wise like there is now. And um, so I said to Guy Leach and Rod Taylor, who was coaching at the time, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving Noosa. I'm going home. I'm going to try this kayaking thing, see if I can make it. And um, being the cheeky or upfront guy that I was, I, I turned up and Benny Hutchings was sitting, and, and Benny's known as Benny Bullshit, but I didn't know this at the time, which this is, had he not been him and me not been me, I would have never kayaked. But he was sitting in a boat about 300 metres from shore and I got my, I got a, borrowed a kayak and paddled over to him, like 300 metres, and grabbed hold of the boat and looked at him straight in the eye and said, do you think I can make it in kayaking? Because if you don't, I'll quit now and go and do something else. And um, <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, you'll be right. You could make it. And I went, oh, like, he wouldn't even, that was the, my very first words to him. And um, he, he, was, he was a really, really good communicator. He had good rapport with people. He made you want to come training. So living in the east, I still loved where you and I both trained as well on the Cooks River, uh, which I did 90% of my training. But in summer, I just in the east, I just couldn't get the competition that I needed to, to get to where I wanted to go. The guys like yourself who, who would make me train hard and I loved the company of all those. No, nobody in our area had the same ambitions. So I would go drive to Narrabeen in summer three times a week in the mornings and do some sessions with those guys. And I, I actually loved it. Like that's the reality of it. Like still to this day in a K1, which I don't paddle, or haven't paddled for ages, I just loved it. The cutting of the water, how hard it was. I was very lucky to come through an era of Clint Robinson, um, Danny Collins, Steve Woods, Grant Kenny, all these guys, they were hard trainers, Paul Gilmore, Grant Davies. These guys were just trainers, they were nothing else. I don't think if it was today's world, I don't think I would have made it because I would have had about 10 GoPros sticking up over my butt. <laughs> I would have been more con concentrating on how many likes on Instagram I got. So there was none of that. Right? We didn't even have YouTube, didn't, you know, just come out of, when, I, when we paddled, we just come out of black and white TV into colour. But 
I just looked at those guys and I've never found myself to have a hero. I admire people unbelievably, but I just, I don't know what it is. I don't have a hero, but I admire them. And I looked at what they did. And the one thing they all had in common, it didn't matter what start, like what sort of build they were as a person, whether they were tall or short. Grant Davies was really short, silver medalist in K1000. Gene Robinson's quite tall. Um, you know, Grant Kenny had a big barrel chest and, and all, they were all sort of different makeups in body size and shapes. But the common f- trait was, and I learned it from Steve Wood, was they just trained bloody hard. That's what they did. They just trained really, really hard. And while someone will say, you've got, you know, you, if you go to the Olympics, yeah, you're talented. I'm not sure that I was. I'm, I'm not sure that I was, but I, I know that I trained lots and lots and lots and lots. And well, I used to just be paddling along thinking, well, oh, maybe there's a selector in the bushes there and they'll see that I'm training. And, and I remember... I, I remember that going on and then I made my first team whilst it was a 23 team, uh, under 23s. I went over there and I just, I didn't get what I wanted. Like I qualified to be able to paddle a single. Um, I don't know whether it was my personality. I turned the coach off, which I can you know, turn people off. Without <laughs> a worry in the world. That, that, that's unusual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I don't know what I did there, but I, I certainly didn't do it on purpose, but I, but it just didn't go to plan. And then then when I got home from there, I, I'd heard that they were going to pick an AIS squad. And back then, like being in the Australian Institute of Sport was just the be all and end all. And I remember being at home and I got a letter and it had the emblem of the AIS on it. And my grandmother, who um, on my dad's side, who always followed my, she was probably the most passionate person in, in my paddling career. If anything was on TV, she would want to know it. She watched everything. She knew everything. She was an amazing woman. She was there and I got this letter and I was like, oh, should I open it, not open it? You know, you just want Anyway, long story short, I opened it up and I was selected to the AIS. And I went up there, lived on the, it was on the Gold Coast, and it was just 24-7 kayaking. Like you would sometimes think, well, to me, that's the ultimate goal, right? How could you do paddling every single day and love it? After 12 months to 14 months, I, I, didn't, I didn't love it. Because it was just, it, there was no downtime. As much as I'm intense and train hard and, and I'll talk to you, this podcast could go for five hours talking paddling because I love it to death. Just that every minute of every day and I didn't have any like avenues to go and do something. If we went for a swim, I lived with two champion blokes, Grant Lurie and Sean Abbott, two of the best blokes you'll ever meet and want to live with when you're doing this. But we'd go for a swim. Uh, our backyard was right on um, Broad Beach, phenomenal spot. But we'd catch one body wave. Then the next one's the world championships and the next one's the world championships and then we'd ride to training and next thing it's the Tour de France (laughs) and I just needed to sort of get away from that so I loved coming back home. You know, things went really well for a couple of years and then just before the Olympic selections, I was doing K2. I had some tragedy with my partner passing away just out from the Olympic selections uh, went to regatta, didn't race till the last day and did a K4 with um, the guys I ended up going to the Olympics with, Raman Anderson, Paul Lynch and Brian Morton. 
we got to race. Rahman had nothing. Paul and Brian were doing K2 together. Rahman said he'll move from Western Australia to Sydney to, to train, and Benny said he'd coach us. As it had happened, mate, we, we, we won the Olympic selection. I went to the Olympics. Have, don't have a single regret. That was the best I could do. So what was that like when you started training in, in the K4? Did you think that, geez, we could have a team here that's going to make the Olympics at that stage, or you still didn't know? Kayaking is like back then, I can't even tell you how ruthless it was, right? So I, I actually never felt 100% secure till, till we won the race until I actually paddled up in my Olympic suit. I didn't, I like, it was so cutthroat that people would just undermine you wherever they could to get something better. And, and I get that because I would have done the same, right? So that no one was doing anything that I wouldn't do, but like, it taught so many bad qualities. Like I still have that I know of. I know there's people <laughs> have other bad qualities, but I know I have some very bad qualities from that always looking over your shoulder, always being selfish, always just trying to be what's best for Jamorka. I don't care what it I did not care what it meant to anyone else. I didn't want to hurt anyone, but I would do whatever I could for me to succeed and for me to get to where I wanted to get to. So when, once we got to the games, like I, f- I felt secure and and maybe that like not feeling settled might have been a reason we didn't perform as well in the final, maybe, I don't know, but I couldn't have trained any harder. I, I couldn't have, like what I know now as a 50-year-old, if I could flip the coin over and go back again, I think I could be much better. I really do. I think, like, I've learned so much now as a 50-year-old that I didn't know as a 23-year-old. But at that 23, uh, I dedicated four and a half, five years of my life to every minute of every day to paddle down Lake Lanier in the Olympic final to be the best I can be. And whilst there were some, as you've, there's been some documentaries on Netflix on different countries taking drugs and different athletes dying and passing away because of drug use, which is a tragedy, at the end of the day, I looked up on the scoreboard, I saw that I was ninth out of nine in the Olympic final. Did I want to cry? Did I want to smash my paddle? Did I want to do that? Like the reality is we probably could have finished third or fourth. We, we had been getting some medals in some big regattas prior. Could, could that have happened? Yes, it could have, there's no doubt about it. But I got off the pontoon and, and knew that I just couldn't have done any better. And we started up one end and we finished at the other end. And the people who beat me were, were just faster. That's, that's it, they were faster. And the three guys who sat behind me, I, I still to this day, I don't think that they could have done any better. And that's as good as I am. And what's it like when you're lining up there for the Olympic Games? I mean, you've put in, you know, and this could go for any athlete, and you would have been mixing with a lot of different athletes in different sports at the Olympics. What was it like when lining up, knowing you've put all this work in, how were the nerves and, and, and what you thought, you've just told us the outcome, but what did you think prior? I'm quite funny, actually. I, I, I'm not going to say anyone who says they don't get nervous is a liar or has got no pride in themselves. That's, that's what I believe. But in the, when I got to the Olympics, I was nervous but controlled because 
I, I, I could back to myself. Like, I, silly as it sounds, I used to get more nervous when I was at home after being back from world championships or just selected in the Olympics doing club championships. Well, that sounds so stupid, but there was so much expectation that, oh, you're going to do this. Where I went to the Olympics, people were hoping we were going to do good. And so you get nervous through making sure your training comes together and your preparation's right. So I find it a diff. There was no, the the weight of the world wasn't on my shoulders. It was hopeful, yeah, mate, be proud of yourself. You, you deserve it. You should be here. You've earned it. Whereas that silly thing of going down and we had some, like through that top period, the North Bond Ice Ski Team was outstanding, right? So I was more nervous about not winning in my club and someone saying, well, he's not worthy of being in there because he can't even win this. Because uh, I guess when you've associated like we have with sports people, we're very lucky we cross Olympians all the time and it maybe can dilute it. But the, the reality is not many people meet many Olympians, right? So, and they're proud of you for that. And, and they're all wishing you well. But the, when you've got the expectation of the peers that you respect, it's completely different. And, but when I went up to the line, I remember um, more, more vividly the semi-final when we got in front and we were in control and we won the semi-final, the joy that it's like, I've just made what, what I want to make and I'm really, really confident. I really, really enjoyed the experience. But when I got up to the, the Olympic final, it was it was a quite a funny course. It's really pitch, picturesque. It's on a place called Lake Lanier. It's like a little bit of a funnel. It started off thin and branched out wide. There was a floating grandstand on, on the finish line that went for 200 metres. And the races were 10 minutes apart. So you had to be on the water to paddle up to the start line from the finish line. So you had to paddle past the finish line. So you had to have respect for the races coming down, which I think uh, might have been the women's K1500. I, I don't really remember. So we were stopped right under the grandstand, like nearly smack bang in the middle. And um, all these people from Australia were waving flags and screaming, you got this, you're going to win this, and you're the go, go. And it was just like, yeah, right. And I used to have this, um, not a superstition, I used to like wearing this big, heavy um, grandpa's thermal top, that like this really white, thick thing. But I had the, uh, right under my arms, I had it, I had it split. So I wouldn't, and I'd wear that. So I didn't have my uniform on, it was underneath, but I'd tuck it under my seat before we'd race. And I remember we were just about to take off and this guy just sort of out of my eye came running down. He went, you haven't got your gear on. Where's your uniform? You can't get to the start line. I'm like, don't worry. I lifted it up and went, don't worry. It's all good. And um, yeah, we got up there and spun this big K4. It's like a big semi-trailer truck. Swung it around into our lane and it was dead flat like glass. And I remember looking down there and I could see Cooks River. I could see Narrabeen, I could see the RAS, I could see all those times when that my friends had gone out drinking and partying and having such a good time and all the times where I felt lonely and isolated because I didn't do that, because I just didn't want any regrets, I could see it all. And that's what sort of I remember 
locking myself into my foot pedal, which had these really tight straps and pushed myself back onto the back of my seat, sat up proudly and I, and I took my top off and sort of it exposed the Olympic rings to me. Like it was like I had my suit on, I had everything like that. So, and then before you know it, it's gone and, and the race is done and I thought, when was, what, what, like how do I remember it and everything? And, I, and when I got back from the games, we came into the Sydney Olympics and I remember in like 2003, I heard an interview with Melinda Gainsford, the, the 100 metre runner, and a question was asked of her, you know, what, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? And she said, when I race my best, I can't tell you what happened. Yeah. Like we race, she races for 10 seconds, we race for just under three minutes. So I do remember some parts of it, but not really. I don't really remember any of it. And I just remember looking up at the scoreboard and saying ninth, and I told you that I didn't care. Well, <laughs> I did, I did. But, I, but by the time I collected my thoughts, I was all right. But there were a few expletives at the shack shouldn't, uh, shouldn't in case we're played, um, you know, before or after school. But, um, yeah, no, it's like, yeah, but nervous, but, but, but joyful and proud. Yeah, but I mean, still, it's a great achievement just to get the Olympic Games, let alone uh, and making a final. Um, you know, not many people get that get to do that. No, but I think in life, it's it, I don't like just getting there. I think like get there and be the best you can be. Right? There's there's going to be someone who does the marathon and comes 150th. Well, if they tried to, if they thought they were coming 200th and they come 150th, perfect. I, I just like I I didn't want to just go. That's what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to just go. I wanted to be to go there and do the best I can do. And the one thing about the Olympics is there's no excuses and everyone has a big dig. So you've got to be on your game. <laughs> now, we'll talk about the back to surf club ski paddling. We've paddled for years through, um, you know, and, and as you said, some of those North Bondi teams, the club championships are probably harder doing the state championships at some sometimes down there at North Bondi. Oh, no doubt about it. You put in, um, you know, Andrew Peacock who paddled, you know, with us who won the ski relay. Paul Tatum was like second silver medalist in Australia. And so when you talk about a bloke who was tough, like he's tough as, right? He wouldn't give you an inch. We would sometimes do some 250 metre efforts and like we wouldn't talk to each other you know, because who would try and win three or four? And then, you know, you were paddling really well at the time. Tommy Woodruff had joined in. The, the, the Michael boys were young uh, coming through the system. And then a host of like 10 or 15 others who'd come and the sessions were total old school. No, everyone wanted to win an effort. So there was, they were on and they were fast and they were hard and they were tough. But I'll tell you what, they were enjoyable. <laughs> it was good fun. Well, I'll, the only the only claim I've got, mate, is that 1994, the Branch Championships, is the only time. I mean, it's the first time I've beaten you, probably the only time I've ever beaten you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, from what I remember there, there was some fun going on. <laughs> you, were, you were the best man for the job, mate. You, you won that day. You won that yeah, day. That, I can see that little uh... hanging on the back of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, mate... Uh, with the competition there, the the Aussie titles, remember there used to be like 35, 40 heats 
And you had to get, you know, they took seven through out of 14. The cutthroat was just unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day. Is is the standard, like with making the final the last few years and, you know, 50 and 49 and whatnot, is, is it a blight on the sport? Is it good by me? Or what is it? How does it all fit in? I think the people who are winning and the people predominantly in the final are, are as good in any era. I think they're, I think they're, they're, they're really being in the final. I think of being in the final of yesteryear and the final of today, I think the people right up the front are as, are as good and can be compared. I think the difference is there was more depth in terms of speed. I remember that if, you know, in a quarterfinal, it was really realistic that someone in that quarterfinal did have the ability to to win the final, the open final. And your second and third rounds, and as you said, there was 35 heats. I remember, I still will never forget it, and I guess it's a memory to me because because I won it, but um, the Manly Carnival used to be massive, and there was 31 heats of the open single and 18 heats of the junior single. And on that day, I was lucky enough to win the open single and the junior single in the one day. And then going to Aussies, he's still going around, Pete, Pete Connell, the, 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 the um, official, you know, there was 35 heats and you were number like 400 and like, I couldn't work out what heat I was in. And that was, you talk about nerves from before, <laughs> trying to work out what heat you're in and Pete, am I up yet? And I used to be just queued back a mile. And um, I, I, would, I would truly love for us to grow to that 550, 600 people, um, seven rounds to make the final seven real hard rounds. I know that in like in the heat, you, you know, you still had to be on your game. The good people probably could have got through their heat with just, you know, not, I won't say just cruising, but backed off a little bit from then on, it was, it was game on and, no, and everyone raced so hard and it was that much of a big deal. If you were, if you thought you were a big deal and you missed out, everyone was talking about it. Whereas Today, unfortunately, the numbers aren't there, but but I but I can't take away from how good they are. Like Noah Noah Havard and Riley Fitz and Jackson Collins and these sort of guys that they, they, they're they're winning in any era. They're that good. As you said, that's dropped away a little bit in in the the surf club sort of competition. But on the other hand, now we've got ocean ski paddling's come along, and Shore and Partners have come along, put a lot of money in. And that just seems to be building each year. Oh, ocean paddling. Like, if you ever wanted to have enjoyment of longevity of paddling, this is it. And I can't tip my hat enough to Earl Evans and Alan Zion, Zion for, for, for their incredible support financially to help what Dean Gardner and his Australian Ocean Racing Series has built. Like, the, the, no one has put in to one, a one-man band with, with his company of helpers, Yander and, um, and a few people in an ocean paddler. But what Dean has done for 20 years and probably what, what would his cake look like if he could build a cake to be the best it could be, the passion of Earl and making it enjoyable has lifted Dean, I think, to, to, to new heights. And, but... Sure and Partners have just made it so enjoyable. And there's, you know, there's a few dollars for people to make. I know the top people, like we talk about the iron, if, if you're in surf club as being the pinnacle, 
I think if you're Corey Hill and you have a, a standout year and you're Ali Day and have a standout year, I, I, I think Corey could walk away with a, a quite a bit more money than, than what Ali does. If, if that's what you're talking about, like money for professional sport, this is unprecedented. And people from around the world are chasing this money now. We haven't got just a series where um, a few race. We've got now, we've got a week racing of the Shoreham Partners WA Race Week. Like a week. Let's not go there and have a holiday for a week. It's, it's, it's racing and you know, it's represented by about 20 different countries. But the reality is it's South Africa versus Australia. And I think what's happened from there is other people who have run events um, have lifted their game to make a better event. And as a result, the events are better. There's more people doing it. And what I think is important when you get 40s to 50s, I really believe you need to have something in your life, a passion. I always say, I don't care if it's sewing, knitting, painting. I think you have to have something. And we love paddling, you and I, so we can still do it. We can still do it. And, yes, we can admire how good Corey Hill, Hank McGregor, and um, Tommy Norton and all these guys are, but we can have our little own battle in the 50s and go, right, oh, well, we're 10 minutes behind the winner, but more importantly, I was three minutes in front of Bruce Hopkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's all that matters. Well, well, I mean, yeah, as you know, the 50s, is that bloody competitive? It's, <laughs> it's like, it, to, to get a place in the 50s, you've got to be in the top 15 overall. <laughs> it is just the it is, and you know what? I, I, I tried to have a little break somewhat after the surf titles, and then you go, oh, no, Hoppo's training again. He's training <laughs> the house down. And then someone else is, that you, you know, you have your little competitive battle. So you're back out doing it again. And I just think that that going, whether it's two days a week, three days a week or whatever, and, you know, there's a guy called Matt Jones who was a terrific surf ski paddler years ago. He's got back into it. And I just saw him the other day at uh, one of the races and he just had a huge smile on his face. He's, you know, he just looks better and healthier and just better for it. And that's what I love. Like, you know, when you cross the line, yes, you want to say, oh, I won or I come fifth or whatever it is. The reality is no one really cares. But if you can still be healthy, both mentally and physically, as a result of having a goal and a race, perfect. Let's do it to a 100. Yeah, no, 100%. And you can see that now where... Guys in their 60s and 70s are still doing. They're still out there racing and, and doing some good times. Yeah, great times. But, but you know what? They're still in a huddle and they're still meeting up two or three times a week. And, yeah, they're telling their stories that we think are all a load of crap and they're listening to us going, what are they talking about? And then the 30-year-olds are, what are they talking about? But we're still talking about stuff and looking forward to challenges. And, and you know, we bump into each other and I'm always asking you how you're going. You're asking me how I'm going. How would you race? And we've got a common interest, and it, and it just makes us feel. I think it makes us feel better about ourselves. Yeah, it does. I think it helps you mentally. It helps you just in your day to day life. If you've got something to go and do, get something to get out of bed for, it makes a massive difference. Oh yeah, you get off the water in the morning and you've done a training session in a group, and there's so the difference is now. Like I set up my kayak coach. Uh, 589 weeks ago, as I write programs each week, and I can tell you, getting off the water from those sessions, some days you drag your feet there, when you get off, you feel a million dollars. 
a million dollars and I'm, I'm not racing any of those races. Like I've been doing all that training to be the best I can be, but it's not like, it's not Olympic level and it's not, it's pure enjoyment. And those Sean Partners Australian Ocean Racing Series is what gives me the enjoyment to, to keep doing it. Yeah, and I, I agree because it, it's probably what keeps me going as well. If that wasn't around and Ocean Pally didn't come, I don't think I'd be paddling this at this age. No, well, there's no way I would be. That's what I started when I got back into it. I did some ocean ski races and and then did another one and then did another one. And, you know, I, I think I'll, you and I might – one of the downfalls is to, to us is that we grew up in that era of surf ski that we didn't know ocean paddling. So if you sat on a runner, you were bludging. So you just tried to out paddle it and we didn't learn the skill of catching the runners. So it's now the last few years is trying to learn a skill of how can you use the ocean so well, you know, and what we do now to have that bloody whatever's in Dean's one mouthful of drink <laughs> bottle that he has, you know, to, to know that skill. Yeah, man, I don't know how he does. We paddled out, was it last night we paddled, did some uh, downwind with some great runs and I was getting some crackers and he was pulling away, so I don't know what what he does. Realizing you, you think you're ripping, and you look over, and he doesn't even take a stroke. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, he's paralyzing. I can't stand it. Or I hate worse when he goes to the doctor and he does the barge from two o'clock in the morning. Then he starts all the races, and then he waits till they're all gone and gets out of the boat and hops in his ski. And he paddles and you get to the finish line and there he is standing on the beach already. <laughs> is there anything worse yeah. moralising than that? <laughs> Unbelievable. But uh, now let's talk a bit about um, the, the, the next stage of what you've been doing. That's race one. Tell us about how that came about. It also caused a bit of controversy, didn't it? Yeah, it caused massive controversy and still does, which is such a shame. Um, it, it was never set out to. I'm... I let a tough, strong enough guy, you know, and um, but to say that what people say and and write doesn't sort of somewhat like unnerve you, it does. It's nasty. It's not want, warranted. I don't like it um, at all, not one bit. But do I lose sleep over it? No, no, I don't. I don't know. But I go to bed still at seven thirty at night, and um, <laughs> I uh, I don't worry about it. But but I don't like it, right? Because especially in, in an area that you love, like in surf life saving, I love it. And, and when you, like any of us, and you think somebody doesn't like what you're doing when you think you're doing good, that's the worst part. And um, so how it started was that Dean Gardner, Earl Evans and myself just had been in the paddling scene for, Earl's quite new and loves it, Dean 100 years and me 100 years. And we were like, we were endorsing other products and you know and going about our merry way and then we just thought how good would it be to be able to have our brand like let's see our stuff out there and the money we make let's put back into the sport that we love whether it be ocean paddling or whether it be surf life saving you know so Earl, earl's both call me surf dean ocean but we both love each other how good would it be to do that and so we sat around and said, yeah, okay, well, let's get into some paddles. Dean had some contacts and um, we got underway. So we, we built the company. We came up with the name. We came up with the logo. The logo's all 
<laughs> Dean and um, Earl and I and all the flashy. Dean's not so mad on all the colour and everything. But, um, you know, we came up with a, with race being a fast, um, an edgy one being in front. Sort of that's the background, sort of how the name came. We wanted the, we wanted the flames and the colours and all that. So we had a lot to work with. And we started doing the paddles. Um, unfortunately, the paddling world saw that we came out to attack Greg Bennett. And that wasn't the case at all. Greg's done paddles for a hundred years and, and done really, really well and was very generous to, to look after me for a long period of time. And I, I guess like um, an apprentice who's done their apprenticeship and then goes out and sets up their own business. You know, like that's just life, right? And so the, the goal was never to do that. It was just wanting to see what he, I could only imagine the joy that he must see, people winning races using his paddles. And that, that's, what, that's what, I, what I personally wanted, to be able to go down and be in the areas. And, and, and so we, we had three super hardworking guys. We started off with, with a range of paddlers for beginners and, and ocean paddling. And then we grew into the, the, the brasher paddle, which is really popular paddle. We, we got involved with those paddles. Now let's not kid ourselves, we don't make any paddles. We just do what everyone else is doing, buy the paddles, except there's a couple of companies who make their own, but by and large, mostly just importing a paddle and putting a sticker on it. That's not lie, that's all we're doing. We're always working six to seven months ahead of everyone what they see. So once we got doing that and the paddle set up, it was like, how can we get involved in boards, skis, the whole lot, like go to a carnival and do the whole lot. Opportunity presented itself. So we, we looked around and then we found and, and we, we met up with um, the lady, Joe Percy, who, who, had, who had recently, less than 12 months before, had, had bought Dolphin. So it was a case of, um, I, I spoke to her and said, you know, is this something you'd be interested in, blah, blah, blah. We got together, Dean Earl and I and, and Joe, we took over Dolphin. Uh, a company that had been already, it had been sold prior to, we didn't buy Dolphin off the original Holmes family. We bought it off a different entity altogether. And I, I didn't have any history or use any of the Dolphin gear. And whilst the Holmes family are stalwarts in the sport, saying and, and, and whatnot, and have done really well and made good gear, I, I wanted my brand. That's all. Like, I didn't want to destroy a brand. I just wanted our brand. So we, we, we changed the ski name, which they built, they built an awesome ski, so we changed the name on it. And then we got in some athletes to, to help build our product. And the one thing that we all have in our, in our business is that somebody has a different skill to someone else. And we had to use Earl, Dean, Joe and myself, had to use our skills. And we decided that we needed to get good athletes on board. And we did that and the ski was a success and we just felt that we needed to have something of our own from scratch. So we got in Matt Bevelacqua, Zach Morris, Georgia Miller, and we said, guys, let's, how do we make what you believe to be the best board in the game? How do we make it better? Like how do we, how does race one make the best board? Let's, let's get it. We've got a board shaping machine. So we cut it. So we had Bevy, Zach and um, Georgia all in writing down, this is what you need, this is what you need. So we cut the board to that. 
The three of them went out and used it. Yeah, it's good, but it's not good enough. So we cut another board for the three of them. They went out there. We've nearly got it right. Went and did it, come back for the third time, and they said we've nailed it. Now, in that time, we're sponsoring the Shore and Partners Cool and Gutter Gold. We've put up $70,000 to the team events. Um, and we are honest in what we're doing, giving back. We're giving back to the Summer of Surf, where we're giving uh, somewhere upwards of $100,000 in, in cash and prizes. But what people aren't seeing in when they're being nasty is that, and, and what disappoints me, is that we, we're sticking to our true values of supporting things that we believe correct. So this week um, coming up is the Shore and Partners Call and Get a Gold. So we put our money on a team event. There's more teams entered than ever before. The Pull and Gutter Gold has more entries than ever before. Now, whether that's because of Shaw, whether it's called Race One, or whether it's just Surf doing a great job, who knows? And who cares? It's great that it's good. But the thing we said at Race One, we will put the money towards the, the open male team, the open female team, and the mixed team under one rule. You have to be in your club for six months. You can't just put together um, Corey Hill. The guy who won the um, City to Surf, the guy who won the Australian Open Surf, you know, Open Water, and put that as your team. You have to be in the club for six months. And one of the clubs who we associate heavily with, and they're the best club in the country, Northcliffe, they put forward that their number one team. And they had an athlete there who didn't meet the six month criteria. So, so he can't race. In this, so we're not all these bad people. Like we're just people trying to do good things. In the summer of surf, which is by far outside of Aussie Championships, the biggest surf carnivals in the country by by far, we've done where we're supporting the youth. So before they used to be just down the beach, whether it be south or north, just in their own little area, and you have this big, huge amphitheater in the opens and everything to aspire to. Well, race one is paid for that amphitheatre to be there for the 17s. And they're winning prize money, they're winning boards and skis and paddles. And more importantly, if you win the 17 iron on that day, you get to go into the iron final. You get a golden ticket. The race won golden ticket. So, yeah, I don't know what you do. And, and you know, your, your Bondi Rescue, I'm, I'm sure you cop way worse than, than what we have. But... When you're trying to do good and people sort of knock you down, I, I, I do struggle with that, but um, I know we're doing good things and I know that the people who are being nasty are people who are either jealous or have had a really good run at it for a long time and don't like that there's competition or some people just don't like you for not liking you. Like I've experienced that all my life. People just don't like me for not liking me. Maybe because I wear flashy shoes and bright coloured pants and drive a gold car. You know, like that. If they don't know you, they just form an opinion of you. And but we never, we, we don't start out to, to to do any nasty behind any other people doing stuff. There are manufacturers out there who have done brilliantly, and we're competitors. So if if you're competitors, you've got to look at what the best do. And the monopoly on the beach is far from us, far, far from us. We are right down the list 
of being the majority shareholders in, in, in any craft at the moment. Maybe our ski goes all right, uh, paddles are creeping up, the boards are creeping up. We don't have a monopoly share on anything, but we are certainly looking at those who have done wonderful for a long period of time, and they have, to look, why have they done so well? How do we do what they're doing, but how do we be better at what they're not doing? And that's where we're excelling the most. Yeah, and competition could be good all round too because you can become complacent as well in, in whatever industry you're in. And if there's no competition, you can really be, you know, you sit back and think you, you've got it all made, but it doesn't always work out that way. No, I just think maybe some of the, like the manufacturers out there have sort of been lane-driven, you know, that that's their, that's, they're in that lane and someone's in that lane and as long as no one crosses over... We're all a happy family, you know, going along. But um, we want to slice up the, the cake and share it out to everyone. And if you want to come to our shop, we sell everything. Paddles, nipper foamies, rescue boards, racing boards, paddles, ocean skis. Which, you know, we're, we're aligned now with Fen and Nello and we do mount racing. We, we do everything. Like we're not pigeonholed in one particular area. And it would be it would be fantastic for manufacturers of, of other brands to be able to say how are you going and and, show, and and be as friendly as we would like to be. But I understand that they sort of don't like what we're doing for, for why I don't know, but that's the way they are. And if it could be a one big happy family and we all make it grow, well, it's better because the one thing that I can be sure of with all the money we're putting in and all the help we're doing to young kids, the sport will grow. And who will benefit from that? Every manufacturer. But there's only one manufacturer who at the moment is putting up the money, cash and product, to all the major races. But everyone else benefits from it. And that's fine, that's okay. If they don't wanna do it or can't afford to do it, that's fine. But don't have a go at or don't incite what I call social media violence, that's a big call, because someone's doing something that you can't do or don't want to do or would like to, but it's just not in your scope. And, you know, I've been a little manufacturer. I've been the little one. And some of the ones that were big, you know, how they treated the little ones like myself, I know what it's like. And, yes, you you can get upset by it, but you know what, just be better. And that's all we're trying to do. Yeah, no, it's good. And I'm glad you've come on the podcast and spoke about that because people only hear different sides of stories or social media, rumours start, you know, as soon as some rumour starts, they just pick up pieces and, and make up the difference in between and whatever they want to hear and, you know. Yeah, but it's, you know what, it, it is also good that people have a, like a real passion in, in the sport, whether it be for a brand, love it. Love it that people love their brands um, and they're really, really territorial about sticking with their brand. That's that's great. And that that's healthy that there are other brands because not everyone likes my brand, right? That's so, so there's no problem with that. There's only a problem when, when you as the manufacturer start telling untruths to your people and not inform them of the right things that are right. And, you know, just because you're upset because they're doing something that you're not doing, 
doesn't mean they're doing something wrong. And the one thing that race one is not doing is, and you'll never see race one ever on social media saying something negative about another brand. And of all the things that have happened in social media since the Coolangatta Gold last year, where we set up our first tent and people started to, to, to get on there, you'll never see a comment from Jim Walker saying anything bad about the other manufacturers. One of the manufacturers in, in Bennett, as I said earlier, nothing but helpful to me. Greg was nothing but helpful to me. One of the other board manufacturers in Cracker, I couldn't, I could not have helped that company anymore when, you know, as a non-board paddler, very supportive of their brand, very supportive of their son when he was paddling, you know. So all those things that, that, that have gone on in supporting the brands and, and they're doing wonderful things, all these other brands. Wonderful. I'd love to be as good as them. It's my dream to sell as many paddles as Bennett and sell as many boards as Cracker. That's, that's dream stuff. But that's hard work. And they've worked hard for a long period of time to do that. These, these people didn't do, these aren't success stories overnight. And you know what, they've done well out of it. And so they should, so they should. They've worked very hard and they've all done financially well from, from what I can see, only as observer. So if the reward is money, well, I want to work hard for that. If the reward is to see um, an open single ski race where 90% of the field uses my paddles, of course it is. Is it same in the board? Of course it is. Do I want to see the leading iron men and women in the Nutrigrain series using mine? Do I want to see people winning ocean ski paddle paddles using my brand? Of course I do, 100%. But I'm never going to do it unethical and we're going to stick to doing what, we, what we've set out to do that will give back. And I would love people who, who are listening to this great podcast, The Shack, if they could just take a moment and go, okay, I don't want to use their product, but I can't deny that the, the people involved in race one are not doing good things. And they, are, they can't be bad people. And I have said it all along that of the manufacturers, I've never seen any of them on the beach actually going and doing, pulling someone aside and helping them with their, their paddling or how to use their products better. Maybe I haven't been to everywhere, so I'm not gonna say they don't do it, but do they put their hand up to go anywhere and help out in, in, the, in the area of surf life saving from young people to older people to tell them how to use their products better? I don't know, I could be wrong, but the one thing Race One will always do is they'll educate you on what's right. Because like, Point in case, you use what we sell a Garra paddle and I use a Brasher paddle, right? The education behind that is you just do ocean ski paddling. So I believe with your technical ability of paddling and knowing what you're paddling and your love is ocean paddling, you should have the Garra paddle. I've done kayaking. I've been coached properly with kayaking and I like short racing. So I use the Brasher paddle. The, neither of them are better. It's just race one has a lot of different products. And what we try and do is educate you to have the best. Like if you walk into a car yard and you say to them, oh, I really like driving through the mud and going camping, and the bloke sells you a Ford Festiva, <laughs> well, he's, you know, he hasn't done you the right service, right? Well, we want, to, we want you to come in 
to Race One into our headquarters or go online at race1.com.au and have a look at all the different varieties for all different people, uh, whether it be paddles, surf skis, ocean skis, life jackets, colourful ones, not colourful ones, boards, different weights, what is the right weight? We've got this whole great team of people who can help you. Like you ring up and want a board, Georgia Miller, one of the greatest female surf life-saving competitors ever, if not the best, can educate you on what's the best board. If you want to do ocean paddling, Dean Gardner can tell you what is the best ocean ski. I don't think anyone will talk to you more about paddles in the whole wide world than me. You know, so that's that's all we're doing. And if that going back to if that upsets people, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that they're upset, but I'm not going to change. And race one's not going to change. Yeah, mate, it's uh, it's good that uh, you're putting back to the young kids, and and hopefully uh, the sport keeps building up to yeah to how it was back in the day. And ocean paddling is obviously going through the roof at the moment. Oh, what about the numbers? Like the <laughs> Sean Partners WA Race Week, I think it's sold out. The doctor at seven fifty, and I know next week, uh, next year it'll go up to a thousand, and it'll get there. And yeah, it's just it's just good, healthy living, right? Yeah, that's all we want: good, healthy living, and and everyone and everyone having you know out there and enjoying themselves. And if they want to buy a product, someone sell them what's best for them. Yeah, that's all. What's best for that's you? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Every every year to find the, the the ski or board or paddle that's going to suit the way you paddle, not just because you paddle a you know a, a, a race one or you paddle a you know a fan or whatever it is, doesn't mean you're going to go any better. No, but like in our customer base, some people ring up. Like the other day, an eighty year old guy loves paddling on the flat. Never will go in the ocean ever, and we sold him a race one Nella. Hmm. Well. Bruce Hopkins rings up and wants to buy someone. He just wants to do downwind. That's all he's like. He'll do all the training, focuses on what's that. We'll sell him a race one fan. Yeah. So yeah. there's variety, you know? Mate, uh, great having a chat with you. And I've got at the end of the interview, I've got some uh, five fun facts. I'm going to throw some questions at you. Love it. This might put you on the spot, but I'm pretty sure you'll, uh, you can handle anything. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, uh, what are the best? And worst purchases you've ever made? The best purchase I've ever made is my first ever paddle. That set me up for, it was a steel shaft flat plate safari. It uh, allowed me to have a piece of my own and paddle. Uh, the worst purchase ever is probably a pair of, in Canada, a pair of silver tracksuit track pants. <laughs> I think I remember those. <laughs> anything, anything in my fashion would probably, uh, people would say, is my worst purchase ever. Are you bringing back the fluoro sunnies? Yeah, they'll be back. They'll make up <laughs> Mate, uh, cats or dogs and why? I'm not really a cat lover because I just don't think they do anything. And um, we've got a great little dog and, yeah, I'm, I'm like – but. But I'd rather go overseas traveling and paddling than looking after a pet, unfortunately. <laughs> I do like our dog. Mate, what are you most proud of? Being married to my lovely wife for more than 25 years. It's, it's amazing she's put up <laughs> you, mate, for that long. They're going to build a statue in the city. <laughs> mate, uh, what, what is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Uh, the most interesting thing is that I, I don't, I'm, I'm not educated, so I'm not going to give a view, but, but what's interesting is that I hope what's happening in Israel and Palestine, Palestine uh, on the Gaza just 
takes its course and, and, and innocent people don't die. That's, I, I, don't, I can't get a view on it because I'm not educated, but I just hope that good people don't die as a result of it. Yeah, mate, it's pretty, uh, pretty horrific in it at the moment. Uh, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Oh, Foo Fighters, my hero. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Right, Jim, th- thanks for uh, coming in the beach shack, having a chat, telling your story. It's been a pleasure, mate. I'll catch you out on the water paddling. Look forward to it. Thanks, Hop Owen. Thanks for having me in the shack. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.